Suddenly, a wave of anguish nearly capsized my fragile spirit. How could the sweet psalmist of Israel do such deplorable things? What about the songs of praises to God? What about the time he danced before the ark with abandon? He is the most anointed worship leader in Israel. Again, my spirit reeled. What if he's nothing more than a hypocrite? What if this has all been a facade? What if I don't know anything about this man? How does God respond when a man after his own heart becomes a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer? Welcome back to our series, Victory. In this episode, we're going to look at one of the most shocking moments in King David's reign, when he took another man's wife and then orchestrated the murder of her husband. We'll look at it through the eyes of Nathan, the prophet who confronted David in his sin. We'll examine Psalm 51, the song David wrote to express his brokenness, repentance, and need for mercy. And then we'll wrap it up by asking the question, what does this whole thing teach us about God? This is the fourth and last picture of mercy in our series, Victory. Thanks for joining us here on Purity for Life. In this picture of mercy, we're going to retell the story of a man who fully deserved death, yet shockingly received mercy. We've tried to remain faithful to the spirit of the Bible, while also imagining what it really could have been like as those events unfolded. My name is Nathan. I served Yahweh for many years as a prophet during the days of David. King of Israel. The favor of the Lord was strong upon this former shepherd, and I stood in awe. God made his arm very strong. His enemies began to fall. The Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Syrians. One by one, David and his mighty men subdued the surrounding nations bringing honor to his name, peace to our people, and most of all, glory to the God of Israel. King David upon his throne was truly a sight to behold, one of which will forever be etched in my mind. But another sight presses itself with even greater strength upon my mind. This same king, sprawled out on the floor of the tabernacle, groaning in anguish and pleading for mercy. It is this picture, more than any other, that reminds me that our God is truly rich in mercy. One night, Many years ago, the king's army was off to war, and the word of the Lord came to me with a suddenness that took my breath away. A scene of horror was pressed upon my spirit. 
I saw King David stealing the wife of Uriah, a top military official. I recoiled in horror. No, no, he would never do such a thing. But the storm of revelation only grew in intensity. Sending its lightning bolts into my spirit, I saw him when his first attempt to cover his sin failed. I saw him when he hardened his heart. And I saw him the night he realized what it would take to bury his own crime. I saw him writing a death sentence for Uriah and having it carried to the front by Uriah's own hands. This last scene having passed before my mind, the storm of revelation subsided. But the tempest was only beginning. It would be the longest night of my life. Suddenly, a wave of anguish nearly capsized my fragile spirit. How could the sweet psalmist of Israel do such deplorable things? What about the songs of praises to God? What about the time he danced before the ark with abandon? He is the most anointed worship leader in Israel. Again, my spirit reeled as cynicism rolled over me. What if he's nothing more than a hypocrite? What if this has all been a facade? What if I don't know anything about this man? And then the words of the law began to shout in my conscience with deafening volume. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. Purge the evil from Israel. As divine justice spoke, despair threatened to sink me into the depths forever. I could not escape the terrible reality. David deserves to die. He must die. The next morning, I left my house with a bitter and heavy spirit. Walking the city streets, I saw some children playfully throwing stones at a clay pot sitting atop a wall. And as I beheld them, suddenly my mind conjured up images of a raving mob taking up stones and mercilessly snuffing out the lives of the immoral king and his forbidden lover. Purge the evil from Israel! They shall surely be put to death! A fresh wave of sadness rolled over me as I realized we're going to need a new king. Yahweh, I groaned. Give me wisdom to deal with this. Give me words to speak. Just then, I saw a poor man with a little lamb in his arms, and I knew God had heard my prayer. Now, I had been to the throne room of the king many, many times, but on this day, I could hardly keep my composure. The attendant at the door nodded at me, knowingly, then slipped through the heavy door to let the king know that I was here. As the attendant ushered me into the throne room, 
I breathed a prayer for help. Nathan, my trustworthy friend. Come in, come in. What good counsel do you have for me today? Beloved king, I said, forgive me. Today I come with great heaviness of heart. I am in need of your wisdom with regard to a situation that I am mediating. I closed my eyes and began to speak, the words coming with clarity and profound sadness. I told him about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had everything he could have ever wanted, including many flocks and herds. While the poor man had just one little lamb. This poor man loved his lamb. It lived in the house with him and the children, and he brought it up himself. The lamb would lie in his arms as he gave it milk and fed it crumbs from his table. Then I opened my eyes, and I looked directly at David. O king, but listen to what happened next. One day, the rich man had a guest arrive from out of town, and being unwilling to take anything of his own flocks to feed his guest, he stole the poor man's little lamb and prepared it for his friend. A gasp escaped David's lips. His eyes burned with anger. He leapt off his throne and began to pace back and forth in the throne room. Exclamations of anger mixed with sorrow escaped from his lips. As I awaited the judgment of the king, a storm broke forth again in my inner world. The depth of David's blindness and hypocrisy appalled me. It grieved me. It angered me. How could he not see the rich man was him? David turned to me and pointed his finger at me. As the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. I stood up and walked slowly to him with the fire of anger burning in my chest and tears streaming down my face. I pointed my finger back at him and said, you are the man. The king was stunned and as the spirit rushed upon me, I began to speak from deep within. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David looked around wildly like a caged animal. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David's face went as white as a sheet and he collapsed under the floor. Standing over him, I said in an anguished voice, Because you have despised the Lord, the sword will never depart from your house and adversaries will be raised up against you from among your own family. You did your deeds in secret, but God will repay you in front of everyone. With tears blurring my vision, I looked at the crumpled heap in front of me. In a voice, barely above a whisper, I heard the king say, I have sinned against the Lord.
Suddenly, the word of the Lord rushed through me. The Lord has put away your sin. Nevertheless, because you have utterly scorned the Lord in this matter, your child will die. Utterly spent, I turned and left the palace. Obviously, it would have been better if David had never fallen into sin, and it would have been much better if he had just denied himself the lusts of his flesh. But in light of the sad reality, I'm very grateful that he wrote Psalm 51. People who are in sexual sin need this psalm, not only because it gives us an insight into what a true repentant heart looks like, but also because it shows us just how merciful God's heart is. Let me explain. When you read the story of David's sin and you remember that there was no promise of mercy for adulterers and murderers in the law of Moses, the confrontation between Nathan and David is really striking. Nathan exposes David. David confesses his guilt and Nathan then says, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. God instantly forgave David. That is amazing. For me, that brings up one main question. What is it about God that makes him so merciful and so quick to forgive? And to answer it, I know that I have to dig deep into God's word. If I just fill in the blanks with my own ideas, I'm building my house on the shifting sand of human reason, and there won't be anything solid to build my faith on. I need to make sure that God's word is shaping the way I think. That's why I wanted to take a step back from the story and look at some of the verses of this psalm and see how they fall into the larger picture of Scripture as a whole. This way, I'm allowing Scripture to speak for itself, and a knowledge of God's character will give me faith and hope in Him. Let's jump to verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember what the son said when he returned to his father? He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And do you remember what the father did? He embraced his son, placed a ring on his hands, shoes on his feet, and prepared a feast to celebrate. So this parable gives me insight as to why God was so quick to forgive David, because God is not reluctant at all to forgive. God didn't partially redeem him, but wiped David's sin away completely and fully restored him. I think we see that in David's case, God's heart of mercy was abundant. Let's look at another verse in Psalm 51. David also cries, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For David, there was no sacrifice that could cleanse him of his sins, and he knew it. The punishment was death. And so I see a deep similarity between David's situation and the plight of a leper who came to Jesus. He too was doomed to die. He too had no foreseeable hope. And he also cried out to be cleansed. And Jesus responds in three ways that I think we should meditate on. First, Jesus touches the leper. 
He didn't withdraw from such an ugly sight. He drew near. Wow, I mean, what compassion to reach out and touch a man whose flesh was rotting away. Secondly, he spoke a word of assurance. He said, I am willing. Be clean. Those words are so simple and so beautiful. Thirdly, there was no delay. The leper was immediately cleansed. And what a parallel in David's case. When David broke and begged for cleansing, God drew near and touched him. He spoke a word of assurance and he did not delay. Why? Because that's who God is. I'll throw in another quick picture of a God who cleanses and washes. I can't help thinking about Jesus kneeling down before Peter, who he knew would deny him, and he washed his feet. Jesus took the place of a humble servant and came to a man who was so immature in his faith, and he washed him. He didn't shove a basin of water and a sponge at Peter and say, Peter, get to work. Your feet are dirty. No, in humility, he went under Peter, and he did the washing himself because he loved Peter. Let's look at one more verse. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. That seems like the exact opposite of what someone would get if they read the books of the law. Put yourself in the shoes of someone who grew up under Judaism and reading the Torah, with its enormous focus on sacrifice. You have whole chapters devoted to the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings. There's purification rituals for after childbirth, for cleansing lepers and cleansing houses. If God spends all that time talking about sacrifices, then what could possibly be more important to him? Mercy. At least, that's what Jesus said. When the Pharisees criticized Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, he told them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In that situation, Jesus wasn't looking for sinners and tax collectors to clean themselves up first and then come to him. He wanted to come to them and to help them. So how did God do that for David? Perhaps the best way to say it is to use our definition of mercy. God supplied exactly what David needed. He told David the truth about his sin. Then God showed David kindness, compassion, and tenderness. He healed David. He restored David. God accepted David freely and gladly as he was and supplied what David needed to be built back up and brought back into peace. God took David's sins and evils and freed David by bearing them himself. As we said, I bet that the vision of David weeping on the floor, pleading with God for mercy, is something that Nathan would have never forgotten. As a prophet of God, Nathan's calling was to faithfully represent the will of Yahweh. Prophets, they don't have authority to speak of their own will, but only to speak the words of God. Can you imagine being Nathan in that situation? Wouldn't you have felt trapped? The rigorous justice of the law had only one thing to say to a man like David. You must die. And yet, David received mercy. Why? 
Now, someone might say, well, because God loved David. But put yourself in the shoes of Uriah's parents. Their son has just been murdered by the king. If God lets David go free because he loves him, doesn't it look like he hates the victims of David's crime? Would never stand for a judge who lets criminals go because he loves them. So why did David receive mercy? Long, long ago, before this, way before this, Moses said to God, please, show me your glory. And God then revealed his name and his character to Moses. God descended in a cloud and said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but if you read that passage carefully, you'd realize that God is saying this, I am absolutely just, but I'm also overflowing with mercy and compassion towards sinners. Some of those sinners will receive that mercy and compassion, and some other of those sinners will by no means receive that mercy and compassion. So why did David receive mercy and not justice? Well, David received mercy because he knew the character of God. He knew that even though the law demanded his rightful death, the name of God declared that anyone who repents will find mercy. Now, we're looking back at that series of events through the lens of the cross. And so we realize that Jesus, the Son of God, bore our sins so that the demands of the law could be satisfied and mercy extended. But what we don't want you to miss is how passionately our God must love mercy. How hot must be the fire of God's love if he would take sin upon himself so that David and we could fall down in repentance and be forgiven. Way back in March, I was explaining the vision for this series to Pastor Steve, and he said something that stuck with me. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, Make sure you really emphasize mercy because being filled with the fire of God's love is a huge part of breaking free from addiction. So that's what we've been trying to do so far. We've been trying to drive home the fact that God's love is a spiritual power. It's a fire. And when that fire begins to burn in us, lust cannot survive. So that's why we wanted to give you these four pictures of mercy. We wanted to try and show you what his love is and what it does in the hopes that it would make you hungry to have that love burning inside of you as well. And so we talked about the cross and how Jesus Christ has a mercy passion to bear our own sins upon himself on the tree. We looked at Hosea the prophet who was called to live out the scandalous love of God by marrying and being devoted to an unfaithful woman until he won her heart and made her a faithful bride. 
We saw God in pursuit of people in the hopes that they would turn from their sin and run home to the Father's house. And we showed you David's life because here was a man absolutely condemned to die, and yet he received mercy. Why? Why would God do any of these things? Why have Moses put a bronze serpent on a pole to bring healing to a rebellious and traitorous people? Why send a holy prophet to marry a whore? Why pursue lost sheep and forgive prodigal sons? Why restore a fallen king? Because God is a blazing fire of love who delights to do these things. If there's one thing we're hoping to get across in this series, it's this. Sexual lust in all its forms is overcome and obliterated by the love of God and only the love of God. That's it. You want to be free from lust? Be filled with the love of God. So, where do we go from here? If you're listening today, I would encourage you to do a thorough and honest evaluation of where you're at spiritually, because we're going to start wrapping up this series by helping you apply what you've learned. In the reality of your daily life, let me ask you, are you walking in the love of God, or are you walking in the lust of the flesh? Just think about what's happening in your mind toward people on a day-to-day basis. Do you see people as an opportunity to pour out love or as an object to consume upon your lusts? Now, I think some people, they might say, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it, I've got some lust problems, but hey, at least I want to stop looking at porn. But that isn't the question. you got to realize there are thousands of people today who want to stop looking at pornography or visiting prostitutes. And many of these people aren't even pretending to follow Jesus. The question is not, do you want to stop looking at pornography? The question is, are you walking in the love of God? Please dedicate some time to facing this question head on because really admitting where you're at is the first step of repentance. God's word is clear. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. So the stakes are incredibly high. Take some time to answer that question honestly. Don't rush it. Don't sidestep it. Soon we're going to start looking at how to really repent of lust so that we can be full of God's love. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.